sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to episode 41. Subtract six from that to episode 47. Add six, then add another six. My math isn't that great tonight. Episode 47 of You Don't Have to Yell, the only podcast clinically proven to treat your moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And this week, the Data Monkey joins me for a bong-worthy episode containing one of the more mind-bendingly interesting theories on the U.S. economy to date. Now, prior to that discussion, we discussed the ongoing partisan interpretations of the as-of-yet politically undecided coronavirus and go on to predict the most terrible thing we think is going to happen between when we recorded the show this Sunday and when we released this show on Thursday. Now, one note ahead of time. I talk about the recent toppling of monuments to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and express some skepticism about both. I realized after recording, I probably wasn't clear enough, so I'm going to explain more at the end. Another note ahead of time. I totally screw up the audio settings at the beginning, so expect a little disruption around the seven-minute mark. We try to make perfect, but we usually make you don't have to yell. And with that out of the way, enjoy. The Freeform Father's Day episode. I know. Come I know. That's uh, it. This is, you know, in a, I've set the bar pretty low for the amount of research I've usually done, but, you know, this is even less. <laughs> so. All right. Well, <laughs> hey, good news. I've got you beat because <laughs> I've done nothing. Um, so, you know, I've got it as of July 2nd, we're, we're hitting the road, you know, we're hitting the road to Florida. And, um, and obviously, now, first off, it was, you know, you know, it was originally a trip to France, right? Yeah. And then we canceled that. And then now it appears France is actually a safer place to go than Florida. Um, in a grand, so we had, you know, obviously canceled the trip, decided, okay, we'll go to Florida. So now we've got this trip to Florida planned and the news just keeps getting like worse and worse and worse. And I keep asking, I asked my cousin who is an emergency room nurse. She's like, no, you're okay. I asked, Another friend of ours who is an emergency room at Faulkner in Boston for the folks listening, which was like one of the uh, one of the main treatment centers for COVID patients. So she's right. been treating COVID patients for throughout the peak of it. Her mom, ninety five year old, ninety five years old, living in a nursing home, catches COVID from her roommate. Mm-hmm. Roommate dies she's still alive. Wow. 95 years old. Yeah. That's so, good though. Like, yeah. I mean, good to yeah. So oh, some, that's some solid, that's some solid DNA right there. Right. Like if that happened to anyone I was related to, I would be doing a fist pump right there um, for myself. So, um, so yeah. So she's like, no, it's okay. This is like this week. Um, neighbors, a doctor, same thing. Asked him, can we, you know, still safe? Yep. Just take precautions, blah, blah, blah. The only person I'm not asking is your sister. Is the only person I'm not asking. Yeah. You probably don't want to ask her to, no. she's going to be like, no, don't do it. Don't do that. Uh, no, no. Cause, cause for, again, for the folks listening, 
the monkey's sister is a doctor. Also uh, has been treating COVID patients. Also has been treating that. COVID patients and is also, uh, she's very direct and very like, very direct, very decisive and generally like very, would you say, I wouldn't say, is cautious the right word for her or what's, um, pragmatic pragmatic like Um, like if it's not if it's a risk not worth taking she's very quick to to say it's not worth doing like no don't do that she's definitely not a she's not overly cautious like they like to have fun i mean yeah they've they've sailed around the caribbean on a boat with just two of them and all kinds of stuff like they go on adventures but she's definitely not a yolo person right (laughs) Mm. she's not going to be like oh yeah come on you're right i mean you know, wh- I mean, when is this bar going to be open again? Why don't we yes. go out and take the risk? It's like, well, that's kind of silly. Um, bars Jeez. are open all the time, and there's really no reason to risk your life or your loved ones just for that. So, okay. Yes. Um, yes. I remember telling her that I quit smoking. So I didn't even tell her that I was smoking. I told her I quit smoking and got the full, like, smoking is the single worst thing you can do for your health thing. I think yeah. she was just trying to make sure I didn't relapse. So. Yeah, I think that's probably right. She's like, yeah. why don't you start? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. It made me look cooler. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. <laughs> it well, was. So, I mean, it was kind of actually. I, I, as someone who also did that in college, I think, briefly. I think smoking, I, I actually think smoking cigarettes, being a smoker, is better than smoking a cigarette. Like, I think, like, I think the, the, you have to let the addiction seep in. Mm-hmm. And then once you're addicted, then it's actually a lot of fun. It's that kind of in-between period where it just makes you feel bad that you need to get through in order to, uh, to really enjoy that. <laughs> really... I love that I could find and replace nicotine with heroin right there. And it probably be the same. Oh, without a doubt. Oh, you, you get over the puking and the constipation. It's actually pretty great. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, well, but it's, it's funny. Cause like, most people are willing to do that, but you know, running is like the same thing. It like, it sucks in the beginning, but again, it's just, you know, you're not hanging with friends, you know, underneath a bridge, you know, going for a run. You could go out running with your friends. You could, I guess it's all a matter of who you associate with. And apparently <laughs> we just didn't well, you know, Dan, studies, yeah. would, studies would show uh-huh. that you are at least in part, a result of what you hang around with. Well, that's good. So I am. So uh, yeah. you hang around with me. So congratulations. Thank you. You're <laughs> you're you're up in the bar, and then um. Oh, I was going that, the other way with that one. <laughs> oh, well, okay. I don't okay, know. I was man. Suggesting maybe you needed to cut off this relationship. Yeah. Okay. Seriously, this is the last episode, everyone. Bye bye. Sorry so, to disappoint the folks in Lower Saxony. I will not. Yes. I will not be back. Well, that's okay. We have some folks in Utrecht now who uh, who will oh, right on. Not this same country. My, so, so our, our new, my new thing might be that we come up with a new T-shirt each time I come on. But my yeah. new T-shirt idea is on the front. It says "You don't have to yell," and on the back yeah. it says "We're really big in Lower Saxony." I think that's. I think that's actually perfect. We are really. Yep. I think that's perfect. We're going to print that. that. Meaning we have slightly more <laughs> listeners there than anywhere else, which is to say not that many. But yes, hey, that's okay. Point, but there's more than yesterday. So that's all right. That's it. Continuous improvement. So the, the interesting thing, though, about, you know, this whole kind of information gathering exercise 
into whether I should be traveling or not is that I can't get accurate information because of Ron DeSantis and not, not necessarily because of Ron DeSantis specifically, which there are questions as to, you know, there, and the governor of Florida, I should say for folks who maybe aren't up on their governors like I am, there are outlets, you know, there, there are a bunch of outlets that hate DeSantis and they really just want to paint this picture of this, uh, this Republican administration that is in lockstep with Trump and wants to paint the picture of COVID not being a big deal. So they're not doing any restrictions and n- not to say uh, neither are true, you know, not to say DeSantis is not monkeying with data, not to say that there are uh, media outlets that are aggressively painting DeSantis as a Trump lackey uh, hell bent on infecting the entire state. But all the drama makes it impossible for me to feel like I am getting 100% accurate information. Yeah, and this is actually a statement that I think we could say about like all politicians in relation to this, okay? Mm-hmm. Is, is that they're all kind of like spinning and arguing with a virus. Like, and, you know, it's like, uh, I, I might have used this phrase before. Yeah. But, um, you know, David Mamet once wrote a line to like, you can't talk your way out of a sunburn. You know, like, I just, like, there's no way, like, they can, they think it's political when it's biological. And so there's all this, like, we need to, I need to manage this and I manage, manage the message and, and make sure I'm not infringing on this group. But, you know, I'm, I'm giving deference to that group, but at the same time, I don't want to piss off this group. And you're like, you realize the virus doesn't care about any of this. Like, it's just going to, it's, this is like an, an immovable force in the term, like, or, or an irresistible force in the terms of like, it's just going to continue doing what it's doing. And, and like, there's nothing there's nothing you can sort of do to manage it other than to sort of try to manage the shutdown. And so this is why I can't, I'm fascinated by the pushback on like the most basic measures. Like on the one hand, I completely am with the argument of like, look, I mean, we can stratify the risk. And I think you taught, you know, I talked about this in the past, like we can stratify the risks and we know who's at most risk and who's at the less risk. And I, I get all that. And so, and yeah, we don't want to crash the economy indefinitely. So we have to figure out a way to work around this. But then when you get pushback on the most basic things, like to your point, I mean, DeSantis was out saying like, you know, I'm not sure whether masks should be mandatory. And you're like, really, is this really like the the infringement you're going to get all angry about? Like, it wasn't seatbelts. It's not texting. Like when we tell you, you can't text while driving, like, I mean, actually, which is actually probably the better analogy because you can kill somebody else, right? This is the whole point. It's not about you. It's about other people that you could give it to. Um, when you're asymptomatic. So like, I, I, why is, why are we having a fight about this? And I, I think it's just the, again, it's the, the polarity of everything. We, everything's got to be a, a, a political fight in some way. I think it's the polarity of everything. Um, I would say, and I'm going to give sort of my partisan, you know, parentheses or whatever you want to call it. I'm going to give my little foghorn, that there's a little partisanship coming up. But I feel like, I've said this before, I feel like Trump is managing this like uh, a a case of salmonella at one of his resorts. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, let's let everybody know the kitchen's clean and it's safe to order the tuna 
and everything's great again. And it's like, and this isn't, this isn't a blemish on his record. Look, every country, every country has had a coronavirus outbreak. Every country with a major airport. So it's yeah. nobody's fault that COVID arrived here. Nobody was like, for all those people trying to blame the, and look, the administration wasn't perfect, but for all the people trying to blame the administration or the break of the, the outbreak on the administration, the arrival of COVID, look at every other country not run by, you know, Republicans. Look at every other country not run by Donald Trump. All of them have had outbreaks. All of them have had shutdowns. How they've managed it has been vastly different. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I, I no, think. No, and the ones who are managing it like we seem to be managing are having the most trouble. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. I mean, you want to talk about the probably the worst case of managing it is probably that one. Oh, without it. Well, without a doubt. And I've I've actually, you know, I've had a chance to watch kind of Bolsonaro's rise because, again, for those of you who listen to the podcast, you know, I decided to teach myself Brazilian Portuguese, which has resulted in me being able to cook some really awesome dishes and also get my news in Portuguese, which has been interesting. And um, and so I, you know, just to keep my ear tuned to the language, I, I, and my eyes tuned to it, I'll, you know, check in with the news there on a weekly basis. So I've been watching Bolsonaro's rise. It is identical to Trump's identical, identical demographic, um, identical approach and, uh, and ident- and identical reaction to COVID. You mean sort of wait, so, uh, identical demographics, meaning el- older people or the, mm-hmm more conservative law and order types you mm-hmm. know like basically and brazil is what brazil and again i'm going to give another partisan trigger warning here brazil is the world is is what donald trump portrays the united states as effectively which is you know brazil does have a very bad uh, problem with crime it has a uh it has a, a lot of very impoverished folks. And again, for those folks who haven't listened to February's Black History Month episodes, there's a comparative history of Brazil and the United States that are two episodes that, that explain the history between the two countries uh, very well. But, you know, both have this pop, pro, both have this problem of like legacy poverty due to slavery. Uh, and the only difference is the United States was much uh, was had a much smaller uh, population uh, in terms of in terms of uh, you know p- those who were enslaved, right? Uh, and number two, I mean, look, we didn't do a great job integrating newly li- newly emancipated slaves into society, but we did better than Brazil did. Like Brazil just set everybody free, and it was like, all right, go get a job, and you know you've been working as a slave your entire life. What are you going to do? Right. So what these people did is they effectively went back into slavery, and that's kind of what's brazilian society has been since so you know like the united states you have this uh group of people who are protected under the law they are insulated from all the perils of society uh and then you have this middle class that is trying to get protect is trying to get into the fortress so to speak and they're much larger and they're typically more often the victims of uh, a lot of the the crime problems they have and so bolsonaro and so bolsonaro's take has been this very harsh sort of law and order uh type approach similar to trump's which is you know arm the population more severe prison sentences uh all that stuff the only difference i think 
is that in the case of the folks in Brazil, most people there have actually been a victim of a violent crime. You know, most people there have actually had like a gun or a knife pulled on them. Whereas here, you've got a lot of people who live, you know, miles away from, you know, the nearest jaywalker. Right. And they're freaked out that there are hordes of lawless mobs coming to get them. Right. Um, so that was a bit of a rant. But yeah, so that's so so ultimately, you know, I think his maybe his motivations and I don't want to get into psychology of him of, of Bolsonaro is a little different. You know, he's he his is more like bluster than if, at least from what I can see yeah. than it is like, oh, this is going to look bad for me in an election year. Right. You know, right, it's right, more right. like I'm not afraid. Of, I'm not afraid of covid. Why do we have to be afraid of covid? You know, we've got dengue. We've got yellow fever, which they legitimately do. Everybody gets pink eye in the summer. It's crazy. Hmm. So that's another story, but, um, but yeah, so, so, so that's kind of the difference, but same thing. Like there's, there hasn't been uh treatment and I'm actually hearing it from folks down there too. It's like the same, it's crazy. It's like, there are a group of people who are like, why aren't people wearing masks? Why aren't people doing this? It's like, why aren't, it's basically, why aren't people listening to medical professionals? That's what's going on down there. It's the same argument going on down here, uh, up here as down there. It's, I don't need right. to do this. It's overblown versus I'm going to listen to my doctor and try and not die. Well, it's, it's, almost, it's sort of interesting because, I mean, again, this is going to be a very data-less comment, so apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, it's sort of like there's a psychological reaction or something to things. Like you're just living in, you just need to deny it. Because yeah. it's, because I don't know, it's because it's frightening or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a little like, I mean, it's like little how like the discussions around climate change. So apologies if it's a trigger warning I need, if I'm going to bring up climate change. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, because I think it's, there's people want to believe it's not a thing because it's like so big and it's out of their hands and they don't know what to do about it. And there's nothing there's nothing really tangible that they know what to do with. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like you just need it to not be true. Yeah. Um, I think there's, I think you can package that. Uh, yeah. I think you can package that in for, you know, in a, and I, I don't even think it should be partisan per se, but yeah, you can, you can package that in the sense that when there's something terrible, the first, you know, it's like the stages of grieving your first stage is going to be denial. And if you have people not helping you get past that, then you are, you're able to, you know, you have people trying to justify what you think, justify your denial, then it's fine. And I I think, I think it's, I think with what's disappointed me about the whole COVID uh, pandemic and the whole response has been, we are, there is uncertainty. You know, there is uncertainty. There is no guarantee that this thing is going to be beat ever much less in a short period of time and when i think about times of uncertainty and i think i think about again in a situation like today where the where the presence of where where there's an absence of reliable information there's an absence of trustworthy information you know there's a lot of sensationalism the only thing you can fall back on is history you know, that's already been decided. And if you look back, if I look back on history and I look back to equally uncertain times, you know, I look to World War II and I look at a time when the Axis were winning. 
that's the thing. A lot of people think, you know, we bombed Pearl, you know, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and then we went and kicked their asses. No, 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 no. A lot of people died. There were a lot of defeats. There were a lot of defeats before the U.S. entered and there were a lot of defeats when the U.S. entered. You know, we did not have the upper hand. And what guided us through that time were people like Roosevelt and people like Churchill, people who acknowledged the grimness of the situation, who acknowledged the peril of it, but also kind of painted, uh, a, showed us a light, you know, provided right. a steady hand and tried to guide us to the end. And what I see here is I see, frankly, for the most part, I, I see... I see people painting peril effectively right. and trying to get you to run to one side of the ship or the other, you know, and yep. it just, am I wrong here? No, no, no. I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I mean, it's just, I mean, this is not that dissimilar, um, you know, to the, the Mattis comments, right? So, yes. the former, um, you know, so defense secretary's comments around this, um, which were, you know, that, that Trump has just been divisive and, and not and not really looking to unify. And and that's, you know, unlike past presidents. And I don't I don't think that's a, I don't think that's an outrageous statement, except unless you're a diehard like Trump fan. Um, Wrong. you know, I think that's pretty clear. But yeah. <laughs> that's what he's what he's been trying to do, right? He, so I you know, that, that I think yeah. That's Yeah. And to be fair, I think if I were advising Biden, which I'm not but if I were, you know, one of the things I might say is be Churchill, be Roosevelt, you know, don't be Trump is going to get us all killed because then also, my vote- also maybe talk to Marvel about that de-aging technology. Yeah, seriously. Why not? Right. <laughs> Who's going to know? <laughs> just stay in your basement and look, just have everybody think you look 40 years younger, but but <laughs> sorry, I, I derailed you. I apologize. No, that's great. That's <laughs> great. Please, I've noticed that he, boy, he looks old. God, he yeah. Looks oh, old. he does. He does. But it's, but it's like I think, I think people, you know, people need somebody who is going to, you know, whether they want to or not. People want somebody, whether they'll admit it or not. People want somebody who is going, somebody who is going to give them some sense of assurance that things are going to be okay, and that that sense of assurance doesn't move every week. You know, the target of that assurance, and I, I think the the main issue is 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 right now we don't have a political aim other than to eliminate the other. There isn't. There is no political aim other than to eliminate the other. I don't see that. And you, you know, the, the, you know, like the mental framework I'm coming into this with, but am I wrong here? Like, do you hear? No, I think it's a full, it's a, I mean, to you, you know, I mean, it's a repeating, this is a repeating theme on, on these discussions and as it should be, because it is kind of the main point of where you're going with this um, yeah. podcast. But, you know, I said this to, uh, well, I think you and I talked about this maybe off off air as well, but I said this to someone else, which is you know, in in this kind of system where it's a, a you know first past the post, winner take all, the natural the natural you know like trajectory is that you end up in a place where demonizing your opponent, right, 
in in like in classic tribalist fashion by the way like mm-hmm. the other side not only has to be like this wrong about what you know policy beliefs they have to be like you know child abusers or or like they have oh, to yeah. be like it's a, they have to be like they have to be literally like villainous right like and 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 subhuman in some way right like that's the type of things we try to like start to inflect on both sides that like that everybody's like somehow just absolutely degenerate in the worst possible ways. And demonizing your opponent is like, is a feature. It's not a bug. This is a feature. Yes. Like this, this is the whole point. Like then we need, like it needs to resolve toward like those, that side will kill you and, and take your children and probably eat them in some pizza parlor somewhere or like, yes. you know, literally, the other, I mean, the other, or the other side, or the, the same thing on the other side. Like, you know, he's off. You know, they were probably off gallivanting the world with Jeffrey Epstein. You know, doing horrible things. Like, I, of course, like we need you. That's this is this is the this is a feature. Like, yes, you, they need you to believe that. that's how they get you to one side or the other. Because Lord knows that their policies are all like completely foobar. Well, like, yeah. And stop and think about it. the one thing that everybody implicitly seems to agree on, mm-hmm. like in, in the context of all this, they could disagree about everything, but both, but all, as far as I can tell, every single politician is completely on board with, no matter what their background, to just torching the US dollar over the next decade. I know one of the things we had talked about when we were sketching out this episode was the approach to COVID in regards to the protests. And it's actually, it's something I referenced in the, in the Jeff Gregory episode where again, for those of you who didn't listen, this was a couple of weeks back, interviewed Jeff Gregory, of the constitution party, you know, very conservative guy. And this was prior to the protests breaking out. And we had a talk about the, the lock-ins for COVID and and how people couldn't go to church services. And that was a real problem with him. And the thing he said is, you know, the, we can't just allow the government to suspend a constitutional right for what they perceive to be as an impending disaster. And the analogy I used to try and kind of explain it was sort of like 9-11, where, you know, 9-11 happened, 3,000 people died. And that was a horrible thing. But if the government had come to us on September 1st, 2001, and said, we have an understanding that there is going to be a catastrophic terrorist attack on this nation, and we need to start doing X, Y, and Z, everyone would be like, no way. You know, no way. We're not letting you do that. Because the level, the the, the amount of civil liberties we were willing to cede to the government uh, wouldn't, the, the political will just wouldn't be there after 9-11 it was it was maybe a little bit too much in favor of the government, and we've since kind of seen that play out in nefarious ways. But um, but so that was Jeff's argument about church services, and I thought, all right, I, I don't agree, but I I he's he's got a you know he has a point, and basically his thing was like, if we're going to let the government see, if we're going to let the government take away a, a right that's guaranteed to us, there needs to be a disaster. You know, Pearl Harbor needs to be bombed. Uh, you know, the World Trade Centers need to collapse, something like that. So his thing was like, a lot of people need to die before we suspend church services, basically, was the idea. Um, and then, of course, the, you know, George Floyd is killed in police custody. And then the protests happen uh, all around, you know, all around the, the, the country. 
And now you have an instance where a lot of people are kind of doing the things we've been told not to do. Now, of course, I've made no secret. I'm in full support of the protest, full support of the protesters. But I also think if I were somebody who were, uh, who, you know, was faithfully religious and hadn't been allowed to go to church services, and then I see a bunch of people out in the streets doing what I'm not supposed to be doing, I'd be a little cheesed off. Well, especially, yeah, no, and thinking about this, like, because uh, I was thinking about this morning because I recall that, um, in fact, Dan, you and I did CCD together for many yes. years. Um, and uh, I was, you know, I, I, I don't really consider myself terribly religious now. Yes. Um, that's a whole separate discussion to have mm-hmm. maybe another time. But point is that I do know enough about um, Christianity to know that like Easter is like the big event, right? Yeah. I think it's Christmas. It's actually not Christmas. Christmas yep. is really just fun for the kids. Uh, if you are a true believer, like Easter is the main event. Um, and so the idea that, you know, all these Easter services were canceled because of the threat, but, you know, my CrossFit gym can, can run classes in the parking lot and we're telling people that the protests are, are okay for some, you know, on some logical, I, I would argue somewhat tortured logic around it, but, um, only in that sense, it's, it's, it's in too nuanced an argument to try to make to the general populace as to why, you know, we're telling you not to congregate anywhere, but this one's okay. Yeah. I, I think there, there, there are arguments and I've heard them and, and I, and I think it's fine. Um, but I just, from my point of view, that's not for public health officials to be stepping into. And if anything, it's too nuanced an argument and it causes you to end up torching your credibility um, on on the altar of this. Like, I, I just don't, because now if and when we ever needed to lock down again, no one's going to listen. They're not. Yes, because we've already seen issues where it's been acceptable to to uh, acceptable to break the rules and and also total side note here uh you know i was you know every sunday we were in church in my house every sunday it didn't matter you had to be sick you were sick and you didn't go to church we were on vacation we found a church you know that's what it was like we went to a new place they found a church we were in church on sunday and um and we still, I, my family and I still, still attend services. We're, we're Catholic, you know, and, uh, but I got to say, like, I'm not going to lie, man, when the lockdown happened, I was kind of like psyched that I got to sleep in on Sunday and then Easter. Yeah. It's definitely the big religious holiday, but Easter is the fucking, it's the worst. It is the worst because you get, first off, it's Sunday. So you got Monday coming next week. Or next yeah, day. There, yeah, there's no... I mean, you get the Friday off before, but you don't get the holiday on Monday, so... Yeah, that's yeah. it. So so you've got... So you've got... You got to go to work the next day. You get woken up super early. Your kids have sugar before you have to get them dressed in clothes they don't like and take them to a place where they're expected to sit down and be quiet for an hour. That's just your morning. That's your morning. It's terrible. It is the, I mean, maybe they could like rejigger it a bit and make it like, you know, like, you know, take the candy out of the equation, but it's like the whole thing is just an ordeal. It's like I'm reliving the suffering of Christ, you know, (laughs) that's literally, it's what it feels like, you know? And so I don't get, so the point, 
<laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I get why you're cheesed off. I get you want to go to church, all that. But like, don't you kind of, aren't you kind of like, isn't there just a little part of the most religious person, right? Who's like, ah, but I don't have to set my alarm and I don't have to get my like kids into the car and then like park and then sit in those chairs for like an hour and like i you know no i I, hear you i hear you but anyway my point is only that they you know we're just we're making some really strange choices around this and and that's fine i mean i and again i think you i you know i would agree with you in the sense that i completely support the spirit of the protest in the sense that like yeah i mean there's some there's some things to be to be extremely angry about and you know, sort of there's the structural problems of, of racism that we still have yeah. going on in the country. And, um, but we, you know, my, I, I just think my, my, my angle on this was only that I just, why are public health weighing in on this and like, and not being consistent? Cause if you're inconsistent, it's now going to make it very difficult to, uh, to, to have anybody listen, um, uh, if, and when you need, need them to later. I, I would agree. Now, also, just to make sure we're level setting here, there were uh, pastors who defied government orders and held church services, and I did not see any tear gas canisters or flashbang grenades used to break them up. So uh, there's there there's definitely uh, I, I would say folks have sc- there there hasn't been a heavy government effort to suppress either. Um, or one might argue the heaviest government effort was on the side of the protesters as opposed to churchgoers. Yeah. Although the, you know, so, so I would say that. So yeah, I'd agree. I think, I think we're, we're creating a, uh, I, I think we are, we are at the point now where there is no official credibility and a lot of people are just going to have to die before anyone's going to be like, Oh, maybe this is a problem. I think that's the sad state of things because, you know, we're past the point of everybody sort of trying to come up with their own numbers. Like I've noticed a couple of things in conversations, like one, you know, that the the number of flu deaths keeps creeping higher when people talk about this. Oh yeah. It's like, it's like every, you know, every armchair epidemiologist who wants to keep using the sort of, it's the flu. It's only just a little worse than the flu argument. They just keep consistently like inflating the numbers. It's suddenly it went from like, you know, 20,000 people die from the flu to 30 to 50 to 70 to like, you know, people, a hundred thousand people die from the flu every day. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That is it's not, it's not accurate at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, over 15 years of the data, it, I think it's roughly around 30,000 people die. And that's with a vaccine, obviously, that only some people get and, and yes. is somewhat effective. And by the way, it still has the same, you know, stratification of older people are more at risk than, than younger, healthier people like that. That's all true. And that also happens over a period of, you know, October to May, right? So this, this is, this is run through, you know, at least a portion of the population. And as of, you know, I think this morning, uh, we've at least got almost 120,000 people have died from this since, you know, March. Mm -hmm. So we're not, (laughs) <laughs> you know, this is, don't think about the total number, think about the rate. And that's with us locking down and doing all this stuff. So like, I, I guess like, you know, I, I, a few weeks ago, everyone was sort of like, well, you know, we're not testing enough. That's totally true. We're testing more mm-hmm. and we're seeing more and the test positive rate is not accelerating except for in a few spots. But the, you know, this idea that every, oh, you know, actually like, you know, probably tons of people have it and the death rates quite a bit lower. Well, 
sure. Cause the, 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 the test positive rate as the testing has gone up has been kind of flattish, which is good, which means it's not accelerating, but it's also not, it's not suggesting that it's massively ripped through the population already. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and as the numbers, it, I always kind of with data, it's like law of, law of large numbers wins out, right? Like the bigger the sample, the more accurate the data is, right? Cause you go yeah. from like sample to population. And I mean, you, you know, we're, we're at, you know, 8.8 million cases globally. And we're still sitting around like 5% of those confirmed cases end up in death. So, I mean, it's not, it's not like fool around with this idea that it's like, Oh, only, you know, 0.2, 0.01 point. Like, again, these sort of like made up numbers, depending on what, you know, uh, a denominator you decide to put in there, right? Like, okay, sure. I mean, if you put a giant denominator in, well, I mean, if you assume half the population's already got it, well, yeah, if you assume that, then yeah, the numbers gonna look really low. But why are we starting with that assumption? I mean, the, right now, I just look at the, you know, the, the tests, you know, we're, we're testing a lot now. We're testing more than we were. The test, as I said, the test positive rate is generally been going down in places like New York that had the first sort of big quote wave, and it's going up in places like Florida, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, overall, it's remaining about in place. So it's not accelerating, but it's definitely moving into places that didn't have it. And certainly it's showing up in the places that opened up first. Um, yes. So it's this is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, and so I, I'm just, I'm surprised, again, by like this, this continuous need to sort of downplay it, right? This doesn't. Does it, the numbers don't really support that. And I, and I think to your point, I think we've just decided now as a country, we've kind of just given up managing it, right? We're just going to kind of give up and just, okay, I guess it's just going to happen. It's like everything else in this country where we're effectively going to decide that we're, we're, we're basically going to say, you know what, we'll let people exercise bad judgment on a state by state level. And so if you want to be like the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts and be number one in education, number one in healthcare, and win more Super Bowls, then I just lost every listener with that statement. <laughs> but if if you're gonna if you're gonna wanna so if you want to do again what Massachusetts did, which is implement the lockdown, have a very slow and methodical reopening process that is very cautious you're going to see what we saw, which was a spike. And now cases are kind of on the decline of kind of leveled out, but we're still keeping an eye on it. Or you want to be like, again, Florida, the state I, for some reason, am traveling to, uh, where there is a continuous increase in the number of cases. And uh, and again, like, you know, to, regardless of like what your position is, on the virus, what the posi- what your position is on what the government should be doing? Those are just that's just what's going on, you know. That's just what's going on. Whether it's more testing or not, it's all going to be de- it's all going to come out in the wash. But somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong at the end of all this. Yeah, and I think the the early evidence would say that opening up early and and not mm-hmm. managing it carefully is going to end up exactly where it's going to where it's ending up, which is that yeah. you're seeing hospitaliz- hospitalization spike. In Texas, in Houston, they're already talking about maybe having to shut back down again because yeah. it's, of course, I mean, in this, you know, because this isn't really even like the second wave, right? They keep talking about the second wave. Like, this isn't the second wave. This is just the first wave moving out of New York and, and the mm-hmm. Northeast and all these other places, like into the rest of the country, right? And so this 
these places that opened up saying, well, we didn't have a lot of cases, so we're opening up. You're like, well, yeah, you didn't have a lot of cases because it hadn't gotten there as much yet. Now, now it is, and now you're going to see what happens. One thing that should be clear from everyone who's listened to this show is that America's two-party system has turned democracy, a system meant to be a marketplace of ideas, into a war between two rival factions that results in ineffective government and a nation divided. And the division in this country is literally fatal. As the information pool is so tainted, people don't know what to believe about COVID-19. And it doesn't have to be this way. The structures that enable this can be changed, but not without more people joining in. And so I need your help spreading the word. Number one, share YDHTY with everyone you know by going to the device you're on right now and clicking share. I still don't know exactly how to do it, but I'm pretty sure if you just keep poking at the screen, you'll figure it out. Now, number two, come by YDHTY.com and sign up for our email list. It's easy to do, and you'll get write-ups on every episode, additional content, and eventually information on how you can change elections in your state. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, or in this case, a couple of clicks and a few finger pokes. So help me spread the word. And now, back to the show. I quoted, I talked about Winston Churchill earlier in the episode, and I'm actually going to quote him again, which is, he said, the I, I'll paraphrase because I don't know the verbatim quote, but it basically is: you can always depend on the Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted all possible alternatives. And and I think in his case, he was referencing the fact that he couldn't convince us to fight Hitler until we had bombs dropped on us by the Japanese. That's that's what finally like twisted our arm, right? Right. And in this case, again, we are exhausting 50 possible alternatives across every state. And one's going to be right and one's going to be wrong. And whatever bomb is dropped, whether that bomb is on the economy or whether that bomb is on the population or a larger population dying of COVID, uh, we'll find out. Yeah. I I think in the, I mean, the, the issue you know, again, it comes, come back to the, what I was saying earlier that the, you know, politicians need to sort of man, trying to manage the message versus managing the actual problem. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, and I, I completely understand like an incumbent wants the economy in a better place around an election time. Like, I mean, that, that, of course, I mean, the, it's the economy stupid, right? Like it's yeah. it, that, that will only cause people to, you know, to think about change, you know, it's, as you've, you've stated very accurately, I think in the, in the past, it's, it's a really pretty binary decision, right? It's a, mm-hmm. especially at offices that big, right? It's, we're not voting for the dog catcher. You're voting for the guy in charge of it or, or the woman in charge of everything. So, yeah. uh, you're going to be, you really only flipping one switch It's like, keep doing what we're doing or do something different. And it, when, you know, when it's hitting your, if you feel like the, this hasn't been managed well and the economy is in a bad place, like more people are going to vote for do something different, right? Like this. And so, you know, I, I completely understand the, the, the desire, but this idea, I think it's delusional to think that we're going to be, that you can have anything resembling a normal when, you know, if kids aren't like even back in school full time, like mm-hmm. in the fall, which, you know, I, this, this might be the way to segue to, um, to what terrible thing could still yet unfold. Cause Hey Dan, I, I meant to remind you on this fine father's day. 
that we're only halfway through 2020. So there's more fun to come. You know, yes. grab grab a hot dog and a beer because we're going to go around the back nine. You know, yeah. enjoy the rest <laughs> of this year. Seriously, like, yeah, I know. We, for, I think that, I, and I may have said this on an earlier episode. I, everybody's forgotten the fact that, like, we were almost at war with Iran the beginning of the year, and the entire continent of Australia was on fire. And right before but, that, we were almost overrun by caravans. Right, right before that, we had to like invent problems. Let's go on to another long-term problem that we referenced earlier and something that you and I chatted about that I found super interesting. And I'm going to preface this with the warning that this is something you kind of just started rolling around in your head. And yeah, this is definitely kind of an unfinished thought. I mean, there is some data around some of it, but I have yeah. to do some. You have to do some sort of imaginary uh, extrapolation around things to sort of get comfortable with, uh, you know. So it's definitely more conceptual. Um, exactly. So and, you and, being, and, it, and it definitely mm-hmm. qualifies under the the you know how do I know the color blue to you is the color blue to me kind of deep <laughs> deep thought. Um, yeah. So. So effectively what we're going to do is we're not going to be sure about this but we're going to we're going to engage in a little speculation which is not why I have you on the show. Um and I'm just going to ask you to totally defeat like kind of fight your purpose for being here. Um which is generally to provide like data-backed analysis as to why things are the way they are. But your whole thing revolves around the US dollar and revolves around the role of the central banks and I'll stop there. And do you yeah. just want to roll into it from there? Well, yeah. all right. So it came from sort of, you know, this is, as you, you were joking, this, is, this comes from almost like a little bit of a, uh, you know, think about things in a big, big picture and start to get it almost in an altered state kind of way. So, you know, you get to take your, take your bong hit <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then ask the question like, whoa, like what if late stage capitalism is actually ends up in the same place as communism, right? Like, which is that every time because when we, people use this term late stage capitalism a lot, and, and I guess I was kind of trying to unpack like why we think that. And we think that because we, we see such distortions taking place in the, um, you know, in, in the, in the U S which is probably the most, is obviously the most advanced theoretical example of, of, a um, a capitalist society. And it's just interesting to see like the, the inequality, like the rise in inequality, wealth inequality, all these things that, that, you know, we seem to be struggling with for, for classic uh, economists. And so people call this sort of the vestiges of the last, the last, you know, gasp of quote late stage capitalism. But then you look at also communist countries and every place it's communism has sort of theoretically been tried. And what happened, let's step away from the ideology and just look at what ends up happening. Right. And more often than not, you end up with a situation like even though they're after an egalitarian outlook, like by embracing something like communism, it generally ends up with a pretty oligarchical, like, you know, unequal wealth distribution anyway, right? So I, I always used to, like, I, I remember having this conversation with a mutual friend of ours at one point and, and I said, like, you know, look, here's the thing, in my view, between sort of capitalist, a capitalist view of things and a um, free market kind of view of things and a communist view of things. You haven't changed human nature at all by moving from one system to another. All you've really changed is sort of the currency, right? Like mm-hmm. instead of things being in an open marketplace where all the bad acts are done in the open, 
we now move to, you know, a place where all the bad acts are done behind closed doors where no one has access to what's happening. Right. Like, mm-hmm. so uh, to me, like uh, the, the system I'd rather like, you know, the only system that ends up being in my mind, the one that I think is probably the best is the one where they stab you in the front, not the one where they stab you in the back. Sure. You know, and uh, it's yeah. so, but, but, in the, uh, but this is, and this is kind of coming back to the initial statement. You kind of get stabbed either way. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because you, that's, that's human nature. So I, I just, I, I guess I've, I've been taking this view of trying to look at things from like a real, you know, take the traditional economic views or ideological political views out of it and look at it from a, just an ecological systems physics kind of view. And, and like in the U S kind of coming back to like, you know, what, are, what do we actually do? Like where it's a collection of networks and systems and it's, and it's flows of energy that are running through everything. Right. And, and mm-hmm. that's what moves, that's what moves things. That's what moves everything from, you know, pallets of goods from China to, to Walmart and what moves electrons around inside a data center. And no matter mm-hmm. what, it's flows of energy moving stuff and it accumulates information. And that's what, that's what we do. That's what an economy really ultimately is, right? It's accumulation mm-hmm. of knowledge and flows of energy that are, that are allowing us to reshape things the way we want them to be. So you know, let according- me, Sorry, no, go sorry. Go, no, I was going to say, let me pause there and just make sure I'm wording this correctly. So uh, the the first thesis is, of course, that the, the big difference between, uh, you know, uh, an ideal capitalist scenario or ideal, ideal capitalist uh, liberal democracy and I guess what we've considered to date sort of the standard, you know, communist system of government or oligarchic system of government, whatever you want to say is one where there is definitely some uh, predatory aspects of of the economy because that's just human nature to try and gain an edge. However, that is done in the open and it's transparent as opposed to oligarchic, which kind of does what they want in secret and you just kind of... Yeah, and it's or or say relative, right? Because we could say there's still going to be some of that going on and we'll get to what I mean. Like what I think people are actually saying when they talk about late stage capitalism is actually what we have, what I think now, which is a bit like crony capitalism. Okay. Right. So we're starting to get that same oligarchical kind of behavior mm -hmm. going on amongst, you know, the cadre of sort of bankers, policymakers, technology, CEOs, like these people at the very at the very high echelon of, of wealth that I think they do actually start to have some very, you know, like some management going on, uh, you know, behind the scenes of what's actually happening here. And to get to the energy part of things too. So effectively to just illustrate this for the folks listening, let's start at the most basic level where I'm a farmer, right? And I'm a farmer and I'm growing corn. And so I go out into my field and I get into my tractor that's powered by gas that I bought. And I, I don't know what farmers do in the tractors. I ride around the field and throw seeds. I don't know. But so, so there's an expense. Sorry to anybody who listens to this. In the farm belt. (laughs) We just revealed an incredible amount of ignorance on our part, but you know, we'll have you on. I've got like a piece of straw hanging out of my mouth that I'm chewing. And, and then uh, the sun's energy comes in and the corn plant, you know, through the process of photosynthesis starts to grow, create energy, blah, blah, blah. So now we have fossil fuel energy and uh, natural solar energy creating corn, which again, we use more fossil fuels to process. And then at the same time, we're also using uh, electricity uh, in the form of that's also produced 
by fossil fuels uh, to uh, power the computers that are sending the message to the farmer that, hey, some dipshit in Boston who doesn't know how you grow corn wants to buy your corn to eat it. So then, you know, that results in a transfer of electronic funds, all energy derived. So ultimately, we're pumping it out of the ground. We're putting it in power plants. And yeah. and if we keep a record of that transaction, it's sitting there inside, you know, stored in a computer somewhere in a data center with constant energy needing to keep it in place. Like, okay. So these are, so it's just, a, it's just a reframing of everything in terms of, um, you know, that just, a, it's a movement of structures and, and everyone, people, it's like people moving and doing the things that they do creating goods, moving services and thinking about the economy from that standpoint is that, and everything takes energy to move it. Right. And so you just, just it's, it's just an energy flow and a reforming of all the sort of structures and organisms that are around us into the, with added information value that's coming from us. Take so, another hit. So this is all right. So and, that's and like then, just a preamble to get to like, you know, why that doesn't fit with sort of our policy responses then to these crises that we have, like in the capital okay. markets, right? Go for it. Because, all we do is basically take a view that productivity will continue to, to grow at the same pace that it's done in the past. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's again, a little bit of an, um, uh, reductionist view, but it's not, it's not off base, which is when we're thinking about productivity in the future, they really, most economists really just kind of take the past and extrapolate it. And there's no real thought about, you know, how you're shifting the underlying inputs, to the economy such that you may not get the productivity that you've gotten in the past. And demonstrably yeah. like we haven't like, right. I mean, the nominal GDP has been continued to slow over time. Um, productivity, you know, that was one of the conundrums of the last expansion over the last 10 years is that we just haven't really seen productivity kind of come in the same way we would have thought. And, and so what that ends up leading to is we kind of push monetary policy that drives that derived from this idea that we're going to continue to grow the economy at the rate we have in the past, but what if you're not right? And so, how's productivity grow? measured? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. How's productivity measured? By the way, yeah, I mean it's so it's really kind of output per you know per unit of labor. If you're looking at labor productivity, I mean it's just yeah. it's kind of really I mean, at the most basic level, it's basically just kind of GDP per per person in a sense. So but, again, to get back to the to the farmer, I'm a farmer. I was producing a hundred ears of corn. Now I'm producing 102 ears of corn. And so that's a right. 2% increase in my productivity, correct? Yeah. And the idea right. is thinking like if you, if over the last 20 years, you know, you added two years of corn every year, we're just going to assume you're going to continue to add two years of corn every Got year it. going forward. Got it. Okay. Right. Sorry. Sorry. I just yeah, want to no, make no, sure no, everybody, no. everybody gets that. I, so it's just, it's good to ask these questions this way. Yeah. Um, but anyway, my, so my, my point was only that this leads to like, but sort of, I think, and again, running monetary policy at a very high level to sort of push the economy to a theoretical kind of quote output gap when, mm -hmm. when you're delivering, you know, one ear of corn instead of two that we thought you would, well, clearly you're supposed to be back up at two per year. So let's just give them more money and maybe that will get us to grow another ear of corn, right? Yeah. You keep pushing money at the situation and, and when maybe that's not the issue, maybe you just can't you can't really drive any input to, to make it go up, right? Maybe you're just mm -hmm. asymptotically bound in the sense that maybe it's just, it's coming up against some, um, you know, some large numbers and, and, and it's becoming just harder and harder, maybe, right? In a closed system like we live in, right? Yeah. We may imagine going to Mars and I think that's all great, 
but you know we can't even we don't we don't have any settlements on in Antarctica. Never mind Mars. I mean, like when this, we're, you know, we're yeah. not we're not going to like we we haven't. So that's not going to be a that's going to be a that's not going to be a positive return on invested capital endeavor, right? In the short run. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, this this came to just this idea of like because of this, we cause these periodic crises when something happens, and our response to this crisis has just been to again just expand the role of government. We, we were through either, you know, um, federal deficits or expanding the money supply. Mm -hmm. And so where it comes to is now I was looking at, you know, the deficit this year is going to be anywhere from, I mean, God, it's going to be mind scrambling. I mean, we're going to be running over 20% of the economy, I think, in, in terms of what the deficit could look like. And that, you know, combined with the the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is now you know closing in on sort of over forty percent of nominal GDP. Mm-hmm. So you just start thinking like that's you know that's where the sort of the bong hit kind of question came in is like well yeah. it's so and this is not that different than in 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 the EU the same thing and you're getting that's growing as a as a percentage of their nominal GDP and Japan is sort of way ahead of us in that sense. Um, yeah, they've already been going all the way to the point where Japan, the Japanese central bank has even been buying like stocks, right? So Mm -hmm. they buy ETFs of stocks. So at some point isn't, I mean, that, why is that fundamentally different than a communist country that owns all the the, state owned economy? Yeah. I mean, because, and because what results in sort of, and this is where I think you were getting, you were sort of thought it was a little trippy is because it starts to resemble the same outcome in the sense that. If you've artificially lowered the cost of capital by sort of inflating asset prices and continuing to inflate asset prices because every time they go down, they step in to buy them or in some way to sort of either or they step in to buy debt, in which case helps bolster the equity price. So, like, if they keep stepping in to do this, you're kind of pushing asset prices up, which pushes sort of the rates of return lower because they're the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then you're kind of keeping you're you're sort of enabling and actually encouraging you know, more M&A, more consolidation, but you're not driving more productivity because that's, that, that almost creates like oligopolistic and monopolistic behaviors. And you've seen this with like almost every industry has seen more concentration inside them, right? Like there's, you know, there's now fewer toilet paper manufacturers. There's fewer of these, like everything keeps sort of moving toward a, like large companies that generally then own a whole area. Oh well, yeah, because when you don't get, you, when you can't get an edge by an increase in productivity, you can't get an edge by innovation. You need to get an edge by scale, right? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right, and that's your sort of your your yeah. So yeah, and so if you if the if it's tough to get nominal growth, like you can create growth through financial manipulation, right? You buy back your shares, you do M and A, you can you know I mean this is the sort of the um, in order to sort of continue driving that, but because of that, you just get more consolidation and sort of less choice over time. Mm-hmm. And that starts to look weirdly like exactly what you end up in, in centrally planned economies. Yeah. And, and that's, it's, it's interesting because we still talk a ton about the stock market. You know, people still talk about the stock market, yet it is entirely decoupled from the lives of your average person. I mean, I don't, do you, you must know this. How many people have, how many, how many like people in the workforce, people like halfway, you know, middle-aged, halfway through their career, how many people have 
money saved up for retirement in the United States? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was a bankrate.com survey. Nearly 25% of Americans have no money put aside for a rainy day and less than half have an emergency savings uh, that's more than their credit card debt. So most Americans aren't seeing an increase in the quality of life from the increases in the stock market. And, you know, so effectively what we have then is we have this system where, where the, the, I look, I don't think there's an economist out there that would argue against the stimulus that paid people to stay home. Um, but what we, what we have is we have a situation now where the, the benefits of actual, let's call it economic growth or the areas of the economy that are growing are fewer and further between. So if you have your money in investable assets, you're doing great. If you don't, if you're the a person who trades, again, trades energy for money, trades time and labor for money, um, you are the value of that has continuously gone down. And, uh, and it's interesting because it dovetails really nicely with uh, last week's guest, Nathaniel Lane, who said something interesting. He said, I think we're seeing the decoupling of labor from income. You know, we are, we are seeing a situation and oddly enough, the, we're kind of getting there, but not in a method that one would argue is socially just because we're, we're getting there uh, by having a situation now where people can't like, they just, they, they don't benefit from the output in the economy or, or, or the, again, the, the trade that we would normally make for their labor is not one that's going to allow them to live. You yeah. know? Yeah. And, and so, and so now what happens, and I think the, again, getting back to the, to making, to the parallels with communism, we have a situation now where if you, let's say, did, did what you were supposed to do and you had a 40 hour work week worked, you know, took two to four weeks vacation uh, every year, if you could get it, paid your bills, paid your taxes, and get to the end of the road and don't have any money saved up for retirement because you couldn't afford it, well, then you are subject to the benevolence of those who have the money to tell you what your life is going to look like. You've lost your right of self-determination by no fault of your own, but by just doing what you're supposed to do in this system as it exists. And and I think the the real threat to our or one of the real threats to our liberty uh is is the fact that the 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 thing that we use to uh the 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 ultimate commodity we use to survive and what we go out every day trying to get is money and that and the the sovereignty of that the value of that is not being protected in a way that benefits everybody. It seems to be protected or it seems to be uh, managed in a way that ultimately somehow comes out with the people who own vast shares of stocks benefiting. And those who, again, are those those who accumulate wealth by trading their time for money and their labor for money are kind of left in the lurch. Am I wrong there or no? No, I mean, you're, there's a lot to unpack there. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you're directionally wrong in the sense that it, I mean, you can see that I mean, this is Thomas Piketty's work from, you know, I think a few years ago when he published a book on inequality and it, um, 
it, it was always one of the ones that I sort of laughed. It's like a thousand page book, which with some uh, incredible research in it. Right. I mean, this was like the yeah. guy went into like vaults in France to find like tax records from like 300 years ago to build these charts that had like hundred year time frames and stuff. It's like a jaw dropping level of research. And of course, you know, no one, everyone had a, a view on the book. No one actually read it because it's, <laughs> it's a doorstop, right? Like nobody bothered to actually read the yeah. book. They, they just flipped to the end, read to the, the last chapter that uh, I'm sure I'm, um, I'm, I'm, you know, more than uh, 50% sure that was partly the editor just being like, you have to tack on what you do about it. Cause that, you know, you can't, you can't just put this book out and not have a prescription. Like you have yeah. to actually have the last chapter has to explain what you would do about it. So, so he kind of has this throwaway chapter at the end about like, yeah, I guess a wealth tax or something like, you know, I mean, it's sort of this. And of course everybody just jumped right on that and was like, Oh, he's calling for a wealth tax. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, it was, I felt like it got it, 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 people, got away from the message which was that clearly we can see over a long run that we're having a you know almost levels of wealth inequality that are back to almost sort of feudal levels in some way and yeah. um and to your point if if, if uh, in a long run debasing a currency you know allows you to amass power with a very number small number of people who have the wealth does it matter whether that wealth is nominally a you're a billionaire or you have three billion or you have ten billion because from your quality of life, like if you have a billion dollars, if if you go to two billion, does your quality of life really change at all? At, at a point, your quality of life only the the or the the only quality of life change that happens, I think, when you make that much money is your ability to reduce other people's quality of life qualities qualities of life. I, I look like y- your ability to be like Mark Zuckerberg buy a waterfront estate in Hawaii and then decide, ah, I don't want neighbors and then like sue them to get their homes so you can bulldoze them and have a bigger yard. Like that's, you know, that's kind of what, Right. right. I mean, and it's, yeah, but it's like, and, but, but kind of my point, right? You could do that if you have $2 billion. You can do it if you have five. Like yeah. it doesn't make any difference. You can harass point. all the people you want with $2 billion. Right. <laughs> you and know? So, so to that point, I mean, if, if like in the long run, you know, doing some damage to the monetary value, it allows, still allows you in the meantime to sort of accumulate real assets with that and mm-hmm. to accumulate a balance that's so big, it doesn't make a difference whether you deflated it away by 50%, right? Like, yeah. But it does matter to people who only have a small amount. Yes. Okay. So everyone listening, pack the bowl again, rip another one. Because we're going down a rabbit hole here. So I've been rolling around the idea of the government effectively being a social contract in a way. Or society. Mm-hmm. There, the, the idea of a social contract. The idea of, yeah, we're all, out, we're all in it for ourselves. But here's what we all consider acceptable. And so if you want to talk about like the very first social contract was probably people were getting tired of their friends and relatives getting murdered. And so they decided, yeah, you know what? You might be bigger and stronger or more cunning or whatever, but we're just going to stop murdering people when we want something they have. We're just going to stop murdering. That was like a social contract right there. Okay, we progressed a lot, right? It's gotten a lot more complex. But the ultimate idea of a social contract is that if you are a productive member of society... Uh, again, the, what we'd view in this country, you get up, you go to work, you pay your taxes, you mow your lawn, you know, you do all these things to ultimately keep your 
area of the community uh, in check, right, then you ultimately should, at the very least, uh, be able to provide for yourself and not be destitute and starving in old age. And if for some reason you can't work, there should be somebody to provide there. You know, the, the social safety net of failure or the consequence of failure, uh, whether by health or by your own consequ- consequences, shouldn't be life-threatening. Right. Um, and I, I generally think that's a social contract people of all political stripes would agree on. Right. Okay. Yep. So, so now we then need to take a look at how this system is structured in a way that abides by that. And an interesting thing, and this is bizarre because now I am once again taking one of the more conservative candidates I've had on this show and one of the more liberal candidates I've had on this show and making a a little philosophical quilt of their platforms. But, you know, one of the things Jeff Gregory talked about two episodes ago from the Constitution Party, North Carolina, 5th Congressional District, he was somebody who talked about the concept of the fair tax. And so I did some reading into this. And effectively, what it says is that there is a tax on everything of somewhere between 20 and 25%. Um, and with the exception of necessities. So, you know, food, clothing, shelter, right? And if you make below a certain amount, you get a prebate is what they call it, which is effectively uh, a an amount to cover your consumption or what your average consumption would be. So again, you make below a certain income level, uh, you're going to pay that fair tax, but you're also, you've got a little extra money in your pocket to cover it, right? So the idea, it doesn't matter what it is. You buy a car, 23% tax. You buy a house, 23% tax. You buy a TV, 23% tax. You know, there is just a tax on everything. Now, the thing I'm finding super interesting about that when we combine it with what you're saying about uh, m- monetary management, about monetary manipulation, about the whole concept of converting energy into capital or converting effectively moving resources, moving energy from one point to the other. So, uh, you know, again, the farmer goes out, uses energy to create the food, uses energy to get money in the bank, uses energy to transport the corn to dipshits who don't know what their job is, uh, namely me. So we so we have that system going on, right? Now, effectively, that means that, again, if I'm Mark Zuckerberg and I've got billions and billions of dollars and I want to buy a $100 million estate, I have to put $25 million of those dollars back in the pot. And so it, I, it and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like that's a great break to this sort of deflationary strategy that the central bank seems to be taking. Or inflationary, or asset inflationary. Asset inflation, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or I should say, sorry, inflationary. The the goal is to avoid deflation. But it seems like that's a great inflationary break because ultimately, if if for some reason the system is geared in a way where uh, my my, uh, output, my output in terms of energy is no longer related to my income, then that that extra consumption I might do is going to ultimately feed back into the pot. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, I don't, I don't disagree. I've I've long been an advocate for that, like a kind of a flat tax plus a fair tax kind of thing. Like that all forms of income, regardless of whether you, because we also have beneficiary, you know, you you benefit from 
you know, getting your income in terms of capital gains on assets versus by getting earning it, right? Yeah. Um, you have a benefit from if you were to do that inside a partnership versus if you're doing that. Totally. So there's a lot of things that, that tend to then favor the people who already have an awful lot of money in terms of the rate of tax that they'll pay. Now, I get the argument that like, oh, but they're still paying so much more in terms of dollars. Like, I totally get that. Like, I, I get it. But, but the point is to make it, if you really to make it more naturally progressive taxation, I'm not talking progressive in terms of Democrats or something. I just mean, if you wanted to make it a naturally progressive tax, the best way to do that would be to tax everything at the same rate from an income perspective, right? Yep. And then tax your consumption at a VAT or a fair tax with some, again, with some sort of prebate to your point to those who, um, who create a hardship that would make it sort of naturally tilted or in a more progressive fashion. And that's recoupling in a lot of ways. I'm using the word coupling a lot. It's recoupling. We're going to use it anyway. We're it's, and that's recoupling the relationship between money and energy. Cause now some of that energy that's used to create that TV is going back. It's being removed from the economy effectively. Whatever money the central banks are printing is ultimately going to go back into the government pot. We still, of course, there's still, I think, the philosophical question of, well, now the government has control over that money. But in an ideal scenario, that government, we're still at a point where it's somewhat responsive to the people. You know, even today, like I'll yes bitch. And, yeah, yes and no. And partly to your point, like it would, it would somewhat go back. Like yes, it would increase the government, but it also would probably. And again, maybe this is a, a, it's a short term GDP hit. It shifts the time preference for money, right? So it would actually increase probably savings rates generally because people would be less inclined to spend as much, right? So at the margin. Boom. So, like, so you actually, so. Yes, the government would sort of have quote more money that they'd be spending. That that is true, but I mean, let's uh, they're already running. They're already spending more than they have. So <laughs> let's start yes. with that. Um, let's start with that. We're running, as I said, we're going to run over twenty percent deficit this year. So, um, but also you could start to think of it in terms of like it actually incents people to save more, and sort of forcing them to consume. Because like we've actually gone the other way, right? We're sort of like by driving down almost a penalty on savers in some way while benefiting like, you know, while benefiting people who own assets, like it's gone. You've actually sort of forced people to either a take more risk or B like not to, to consume in the near term because there's no, you've incented them to, because there's no real um, benefit to savings. Cause you can't, yeah. really, if your savings account is zero interest on it, like you can't keep up, right? They like can't grow that balance other than what you put in it. Yeah. Wow. All right. Yeah. So I've always, I'll throw this out there too, and we've kind of gone past this, but I've always said the the only difference between America's system and China's system right now is we have an extra Politburo. You know, we effectively have, where China has their one communist party and they kind of ultimately dictate the political dialogue by consensus within the party. We just have two, <laughs> you know, yeah, and that's, that's pretty much well. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Right. So, so I think we've, that's, that's, a, a, that's a, that's an earful. The only so, thing we didn't cover that we need to do before we go is to take yes. two minutes for each of us to give a prediction for the back half of 20 as to something that hasn't uh, occurred yet, at, at least as of when this uh, is recorded that, um, that could still uh, unfold for us. That would be, uh, yeah. 
I'm going to tee this up for everyone listening. So um, the monkey and I, again, had a conversation ahead of recording this. And what we were complaining about is the fact that we plan these out, we record them, and then something monumental happens in between the day we record them, the day we record the episode and the release date. So it's released on Thursday. Typically, we're recording like Sunday, Saturday-ish. So within those four days, normal environment, uh, that's safe. 2020, absolutely not. So with that out of the way, we are going to make a prediction for what the most likely, most terrible thing to happen between now and then is going to be. All right, you go first. <laughs> um, so I was going to make a joke and say airborne herpes. I was going to say airborne herpes because I couldn't, I was just trying to think like, what's the most like, what's the most terrible, but potentially like, you know, realistic thing that could happen. That was my thing. I, I will actually say um, protesters have already torn down statues of, Thomas Jefferson, Ulysses S. Grant, and George Washington. Uh, my general feeling is that if that you should have done something to to advance the cause of liberty to have a statue, and and that there that we and at the same time you can't have a modern day litmus test for people you celebrate. So I feel like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson were slave owners. They were not perfect. Um, on the same token, they were responsible for creating the phrase, all men are created equal, and ultimately creating a framework that allowed us to question the institution of slavery, which throughout history had never been questioned. You know, it was the, yeah. it, they, they allowed, they created that framework. So for that, I think, I, I understand people's feelings against them, but I also feel like you, you need to, uh, I think I, 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 I think we could say slavery is the problem today, but then it could be sexism. And let's face it, everybody prior to what there's no prior to, you know, there's no prior, <laughs> like everybody we everybody we have celebrated is sexist in some way. So so that's my feeling. Tough tough position, but what I feel like is there's going to be some statue torn down for somebody who had nothing to do with, like Ben Franklin. Or like Thomas Edison or something like that. You know, yeah. like, yeah, 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 that's yeah. my feeling. A statue gets torn down of somebody because Ulysses S. Grant, I mean, like, look, the, the guy, the guy, he fought for the union. Like, give right. me, a, you know, like, come on, like, let's, Christopher Columbus is okay. He wasn't American, never set foot in America, and Spain paid for the trip. But, uh, you know, Ulysses, I mean, come on. Like that's yeah, a- no, it is reaching the level of absurdity, right? Yes. Um, so what do you got? Uh, so I don't know that it's going to happen between now and whenever you're releasing this next Thursday or something, but I do, I, it, my, my worst nightmare is that, uh, school is going to be canceled for the fall and oh. that with the rise in this stuff. Like, um, I'm going to get an update from, you know, the, the superintendent that we're, we're, we're going to be homeschooling for the, for the rest of the year, uh, well into 2020, um, into 2021. And I'm, I, I'm not, uh, Oh God. Like, <laughs> we, we, we have been in the, you know, roll the television into the classroom phase of homeschooling since about like April 30th. Yes. So why don't we watch a movie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like vaguely educational. Oh they, god. Yeah, I mean there's going to be I I my prediction over the long term is 
you are going to see this performance gap for people who are in certain grades during this period. And I'm concerned, you know, one of my kids is a third grader, probably most important um, grade in between in K to 12 or one of the most. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm really concerned. Um, in the meantime, I think in the next week, Trump's going to go to war with the nation's teenagers uh, because apparently they punked his rally last night by buying up all the tickets and the, or, or reserving all the tickets. And then no oh, one that's hysterical. That's hysterical. As, as of the news reports I read this morning, apparently that was what the, that despite the cause say the, the, you know, there's going to be millions of people who pre-reserved all the seats. And then it was like half empty because it was people online just going on and reserving them and then not showing up. Now that's funny. That's funny. Um, that's just funny no matter what. I, yeah. I, that's not even an anti-Trump statement. That's just that's just funny to me for all these bloviating oh, politicians. I, I just love when, when something like that happens because it's just like you just got taken down a peg. Just by, some, planning, by, by somebody. By a bunch of like, teenagers. By somebody without a job. I should probably start off with a disclaimer that no marijuana was consumed in the creation of this episode. Investors and banks like to put their money where they'll see returns, and if businesses are growing, they keep lending. When businesses meet demand, growth slows, investors put their money where they can see better, safer returns, and the economy goes into recession. Over the last two recessions, we've done an end run around the quest for efficiency by throwing large amounts of fiscal stimulus into the economy to encourage lending. And while there are zero economists who disagree with the goal of the stimulus in 2008 or the more recent one this year, the benefits have largely gone to shareholders and those who have money in stock, while people who make their income trading time for money, that is everyday workers, have seen their wages stagnate, but have been able to float their standard of living through easy access to credit. And now I don't think the goal of American capitalism was to build the ideal consumer Nor do I think there's liberty in an economic system where the average worker doesn't have cash for basic emergencies, but can get an interest-free credit card to finance a television. And there's an imbalance in the system, and the best way to rectify an imbalance is to move funds from where that imbalance exists. And as I mentioned in the episode, one way would be a consumption tax, similar to the fair tax Jeff Gregory mentioned in episode 45. Now, last note. I express some regret that the statues of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were torn down. I'm also in a position where neither own people who look like me as property. I do truly feel, despite their faults, the framework they created allowed us to have conversations about emancipation, the right for women to vote, gay rights, and the civil rights movement. And I think most folks who have statues would fail a modern day litmus test so we have to ask the question did they advance the cause of freedom despite their faults i'm open to feedback on this so feel free to tell me on twitter facebook or on ydhty.com next week we have christian anoha the son of nigerian immigrants who's running to be the republican nominee in new jersey's 6th congressional district a district that has been held by the Democratic Party since 1983. If he were running in any other year but 2020, his victory might actually surprise people, but you know. Now, we talk about his path to the Republican Party, his current view on their stance on immigration and race, and as with all things, 
People seem crazy until you learn how they got to where they are. So I hope you'll join me. It was a great conversation. As always, theme music by Kvelertak. YDHTY is produced by the Snake Killer, the big Gino Jason Putney in North. If it were any more human, it'd be a flood cackalaka. Until the next, this is Dan Sally going to do something else.